Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Uh, each, week, each week when I preach, you've probably noticed that I start with some kind of introduction uh, to whatever portion of the Bible that we're in. You know, my goal with those introductions is not to make the Bible entertaining. Uh, we have enough entertainment in our culture. My goal with the introductions is to grab your attention. That's the goal. Because sometimes we need a bit of warming up to hear the word, prime the pump, so to speak. But you know, the only introduction to this book that really matters is that this is the word of God. God, the maker of heaven and earth, the ruler of heaven and earth. This, this right here, this book is from God. God's word is light. He speaks and he shines the way of who he is, revealing who he is. He speaks and shines the way back to him. God's word is life. He speaks and things come to life. Life happens. He speaks and sinners, dead sinners, are raised to life. This is God's word. God's word. And we read it. We read God's word written, and what we find there is God's word incarnate. The word taken on flesh. God the Son become man for the sake of sinners. This is God's word. What else would we preach? This is what Tom Brown devoted his life to. The preaching of God's word. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So friends, this is God's word. Does it have your attention? Amen. Well, when we come to where we are in the gospel of Mark, we'll see how anyone and everyone was after Jesus at this point. The people around Jesus went to length after length to try to trap him and make him guilty. But he was one who was truly innocent. So what we find, especially in this portion of Mark, is that Jesus eludes all the snares, all the traps. Not because he's a mischievous mastermind who knows all, everything that they're up to. But he is the personified wisdom of God who cannot be destroyed by the wisdom of men. So we're going to read that from Mark chapter 12. If you're looking at a Bible in the pew rack, uh, the Bible's provided. It's on page 848. We're going to read Mark 12, verses 13 to 27. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. 
And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they shall rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. What does this portion of the book of Mark show us? Mainly, and this is the main point, that you can't trap Jesus. You can't trap Jesus because he is the wisdom and power of God. You can't trap Jesus because he is the wisdom and power of God. Jesus is like the heavyweight boxer who fends off challenger after challenger and remains undefeated. And we'll see today how Jesus handles these two challenges in the specific scenarios they set up. And then we'll zoom out and see how these challenges fit within the greater story of Jesus in the book of Mark. And as we do that, it's my prayer that as we see the specifics and see the bigger story, that we'll be like the people in this passage and marvel at Jesus. Well, the first challenge here to Jesus relates to taxes. Challenge number one, all about taxes. Maybe it's a bit comforting that taxes has, have been a difficult issue, not just for the past 50 or so years, but for the past thousands or so years. Taxes are a tough issue. And isn't it ironic that it's my favorite time of the year? Not really. <laughs> tax season. Now, during this time of year, it's pretty interesting. All of the tax and personal finance companies, whether it be like H&R Block or Intuit TurboTax or QuickBooks, all of these companies really amp up their advertising game. They want to convince you how easy filing your taxes is. And they'll do this by saying, you know, we have tax experts standing by, ready to help you. And so we come to this situation with Jesus. The next group that approaches Jesus on what I'm sure was a very long Tuesday in the temple of uh, Tuesday of Holy Week. This next group wanted to draw out kind of the opposite of what the tax companies want to convince us. Not how easy taxes were. This group that comes up to Jesus wants to convince Jesus just how challenging the issue of taxes was in their society. But little did they know, they were going up to talk to a tax expert. 
Jesus himself. Sorry, this never happens. We're going to walk through this scene. We're going to do our best to draw what's going on just in the particulars of render unto Caesar what is a Caesar, draw its significance. So verse 13, we learn that someone else, that another group sent this group to Jesus. You see that, that they, in the verse 13, they sent to him. Who is that they? What's that passage we were in last week? The end of chapter 11, the beginning of uh, chapter 12. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. This group, this contingent from the Sanhedrin, sends another group to challenge Jesus. They were in the kitchen. It got too hot. So they left and sent somebody else in the kitchen to take their chances with the Lord. So this time the, challenge, the challengers, it says, are Pharisees and Herodians. These groups probably aren't around anymore, so who are they? Now we've seen these groups in tandem together against Jesus before back in chapter 3 of Mark. And like we noticed back then, this is an unlikely alliance, kind of an enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of deal. So the Pharisees, you might remember, are pro-Jewish religious formalists. They only care about the outward workings of religion. The Herodians, on the other hand, are pro-Roman supporters of Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee and Perea, the regions, those regions in Israel. The Herodians were more men of the world than men of God. But whether outwardly religious or outright worldly, both seek Jesus and are against Jesus and seek to trap him in his talk. And so right away in verse 13, Mark alerts us to what this unlikely alliance is up to. He says straight up, these guys are seeking to trap Jesus in their talk. We see that they try to butter up Jesus, weaken his defenses by flattering him. They tell him stuff about himself. And it was ironic here is that all of the things they say about Jesus to flatter him, all of the things they say are actually true. They're actually true. Jesus is truthful. Jesus isn't concerned about the opinions of others. Jesus does teach the way of God. All of the stuff that they said is true. But we are alerted that their words were insincere because they sought to trap Jesus. And even Jesus sniffed it out. What does it say in verse 15? He knew their hypocrisy. So what was really going on with the Pharisees and the Herodians as they come up to Jesus? What was really going on was obvious to Jesus. It reminds me of, it's, it's coming up soon, next month, April's Fool, April Fool's Day. I'm gullible, so I'm scared of April Fool's Day. Um, but it reminds me, April's Fool's Day, back when I was in about second grade, I think, I tried to fool my Aunt Diane, and she's going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I tried to get my Aunt Diane a glass of water, but the trick was I was going to put a little bit of soap in the water and watch her drink it. And so, so this is, please forgive me. Uh, so my choice of soap, mind you, this is a clear glass of water. My choice of soap was Blue Dawn dish soap. <laughs> and so I bring this glass of water to my Aunt Diane, and she could spot it from a mile away. 
And I'm so thankful that she was very gracious uh, in how she received it. Well, Proverbs 29 says this about flattery. It says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. The flattery here in the book of Mark is obvious. But we use it and others use it, use it on us in an attempt to manipulate people. I've heard people define flattery as something you say to a person's face that you would never say behind their back. And I heard people define gossip as something uh, you would say behind a person's back that you would never say to the person's face. I found that a helpful definition. Could say more about it. Well, the Pharisees and the Herodians caution us to examine the motives behind the words we use. And they remind us that loving people speak the truth honestly and speak the truth graciously, not flatter. Well, we're going to get to the actual issues that these guys raised up with Jesus. They crafted a question that they believed was sure to trap Jesus in a corner. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the Roman tax was a constant reminder to the Jewish people that they were under subjection to a foreign rule. Constant reminder of that. The Roman tax was also a constant reminder using the Roman currency of the idolatry of the Roman Empire. They worshiped the emperor. The Roman tax was an insult to the Jewish people. So that if Jesus said, no, it's not lawful, or yes, it is lawful, either way, he gets put into a trap. So if he says, yes, it's good for you to pay taxes, well, that doesn't bode very well with all the Jewish people who hate Roman taxes. And by the way, this is likely the position of the Pharisees and the Herodians. They believe that it's lawful to pay taxes to Rome. We'll get to that. But if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful for us to pay taxes, well, that doesn't bode very well with the Romans. With, an, with influence that Jesus had, this would amount to insurrection from Jesus. It just would get him in trouble. So it appears Jesus is in a trap. The same corner that he put his attackers in during the previous scene when he asked them about John the Baptist. But instead of being like those guys in the previous scene and saying, well, I don't know, Jesus had something else up his sleeve. What does he do? He asks for a sample Roman currency. Specifically, he asks for a denarius. A denarius would have been worth a day's wage. And notice, it's a very subtle detail in the passage. He asks for a denarius. And where does he get it from? More specifically, who does he get it from? He got it from the group that was challenging him. That's where he got his sample coin. So the guys who questioned Jesus about whether or not it was right to pay taxes to Caesar are the ones who had Caesar's currency on them. And just to remind you, they didn't have to use Caesar's currency. Way back at the beginning of chapter 11, you saw the money changers outside the temple. They exchanged currencies because not everybody used the Roman currency. But these guys here who are challenging Jesus chose to use Roman money. So the guys asking Jesus about the Roman tax system chose to participate and use Roman money. 
That'd be like somebody walking around telling everybody they're, they're vegan, but they carry around Slim Jims in their pocket. <laughs> so Jesus took the denarius and he asked them to describe it. This coin bore the face of Tiberius. Uh, the inscription on it was Tiberius Caesar, son of deified Augustus, Pontifex Maximus, meaning chief priest. And after look at the, looking at the coin, Jesus utters the famous words of verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now there's a key to understanding what Jesus is doing. Did you notice what he asks about the coin? What does he ask? He, he asks what's, whose image and likeness is on the coin. They see that it's Caesar's. So, if the image and likeness of the coin is, is Caesar's is on it, then it belongs to Caesar. But then Jesus keeps going. Then Jesus brings up things that belong to God. So we can ask the same question. What has the image and likeness of God? Well, it's people. People have the image and likeness of God. God has stamped his image and likeness on us, on the people he's made. So, so Caesar makes coins, stamps his image on coins, so coins belong to him. Well, God makes people. He stamps his image on us. And people, we belong to him. Jesus says, you guys are talking about the wrong thing. Now, people have written entire volumes about Jesus' famous words here in Mark 12, 17, about how we render the things that are Caesar's and to the God the things that are God's. But for our purposes this morning, we don't have a ton of time to dwell on it, but I think we can go through four points of application, four quick points of application from Jesus' words here. Number one, first, based on Jesus' words, we respect and honor governing authorities. We respect and honor governing authorities. According to Jesus, Caesar does have authority. And by using his coin, his challengers acknowledged that Caesar did have authority. That it was Caesar and Rome who provided things like infrastructure and education and protection. Romans 13, later on in the Bible, tells us to be subject to governing authorities for they derive their authority ultimately from God. Romans 13 also states that God puts human government in place to bless people, to restrain evil, and to promote good. And therefore, Romans 13 tells us to pay taxes. So uh, respecting and honoring governing authorities reminds us, reminds us why we exist as Christians. Basically, why we don't exist. Christians do not exist to be anarchists. Christians do not exist to be political radicals. Our statement of faith about civil government communicates that. So practically, what this means is that our first posture toward any government official should be to respect and honor whoever is in public office. Key word, whoever. So this means that later this year, whoever 
wins the presidential election, whether it is Trump or Sanders or Biden or anyone else, the Bible tells us to pray for him or her. Second point of application. We remember governing authorities are accountable to God. We remember that governing authorities are accountable to God. According to Jesus, Caesar does have authority, but it's limited. There are things that legitimately do belong to Caesar, so he can ask for a tax. But at times, Caesar and other governing powers in general, they can demand things from people that don't belong to them. They can demand things from people that belong only to God. We saw an example of this earlier in the book of Daniel. We see an example of it in the Roman Empire with Caesar. Caesar not only demanded taxes, Caesar also demanded worship. Friends, this is what got the early Christians in trouble. What got the early Christians in trouble wasn't that they worshiped Jesus. It's that they worshiped Jesus and nobody else. They worshiped Jesus and refused to worship the emperor. So while we do have the posture of respecting governing authorities, we do not place them above God. As Peter and John respond to those who tell them, stop preaching the gospel, they say, we must obey God rather than man. So do you see the balance of these first two points? So we have the first that we respect governing authorities, but we don't have the second that we hold them accountable to God then we will respect authority, but we'll never be critical of it if we have the first and not the second. It means we risk blindly following authorities. We risk always excusing behavior. We risk never questioning behavior. Y'all, just because God has allowed someone to be in power doesn't mean that that person is automatically good. Now, if we have the second but don't have the first. So if we hold authority accountable to God, but don't respect and honor governing authorities, the second, but not the first, then we'll always be cynical. We won't trust God that he knows what he's doing and allowing what rulers to have power. So we need to have both of these. Respect governing authorities, hold them accountable to God. Point number three, application based on Jesus' words in Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Number three, God's realm and Caesar's realm aren't separate. God's realm and Caesar's realm aren't separate. Now, many people approach Mark 12, 17, picturing two circles. So if you're a note taker, you can draw this if you want. You have one circle, Caesar's things. So this is politics, government, etc. And then you have another circle, God's things, worship, faith, church, etc. And we're told to keep these circles separate. Caesar's things, God's things. Don't let your faith get into politics. Don't let your politics get into faith. We're told to keep these circles separate. Now, just hold on one second, though. If Caesar is accountable to God, because if Caesar is also made in God's image, then Caesar himself falls under God's circle. 
So it's not two separate circles. It's one big circle, God's things, and Caesar's circle is just a little bit in there. I say all this because Americans are really confused about what separation of church and state actually means. That church and state are separate, by the way, is a good thing. Because the church shouldn't do what the government has been called to do, and the government shouldn't do what the church has been called to do. So just extreme examples. Medieval Europe saw this blending, and the church took the place of the government. And it created whole nations that were officially Christian. If you were just born in this nation, you were called a Christian. And so that created entire citizens who were called Christians, but actually weren't Christians. And it undermined the need for personal repentance and faith. That's the church taking the government's job. But now on the other extreme, you can have the government taking the church's job. This would be an extreme like communist Soviet Union, where they tell people what to believe. So that church and state are separate is a good thing. And it's a warning to us, we probably aren't, we don't run the risk of these extremes, likely. But we still need to keep clear what the Bible calls the government to do and what the Bible calls the church to do. Just one example. One example. We should be careful of wanting the government to do everything for us. We should be careful of that, including... This includes wanting the government to teach our kids religious instruction in classrooms. We should just be careful about that. If you want non-Christian public schools to teach the Bible in classrooms, I'm not talking about Christian organizations that meet in schools. I'm talking about actual classroom settings. If you want that to happen, I'm speaking from my own experience. Don't expect those schools to do a good job. Just don't. For the sake of the purity of the gospel, instead of wanting the government to do that, maybe we should do that. Instead of wanting the government to do that, perhaps the church should simply take evangelism a bit more seriously. The church and state possess distinct authorities and jurisdictions. That's the intent of their separation. But another way a lot of people misunderstand this, and just bear with me here, I know I'm going a while on this. Another another way people misunderstand this is thinking that you can somehow keep religion out of how you think about politics. That we can somehow do that. Because everybody has a view of the world. Everybody has some kind of faith that influences how they think about politics. It just happens. It's impossible to take that out of people. So we should separate church and state, but it's impossible to separate religion and politics. If you want to talk about this more, come on Wednesday nights. It'd be a great time to talk about it. Fourth. Fourth point of application on Mark 12, 17. Keep God's things and Caesar's things in the right order. Keep God's things and Caesar's things in the right order. So in Jesus' response, he tells the Pharisees and the Herodians, listen, guys, I get it. You're concerned that people hold stuff back from Caesar that belongs to him. That's fine. But you know what you should be more concerned about? 
You should be concerned whether or not people hold back the stuff that belongs to God. You're talking about the wrong thing. So this reminds us, this reminds us Christians that when the Bible speaks of our citizenship, it doesn't label us as citizens of a particular country. Even though we're called to respect authorities of whatever country we find ourselves in, when the Bible speaks of our citizenship as Christians, it tells us we are citizens of heaven. It tells us that we are foreigners and strangers on earth. What does Jesus say? He says, seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Caesar. The lordship of Jesus Christ is meant to be over every aspect of our lives. Public and private, work and play, thought life and behavior, intellect, feelings, material possessions, spiritual capacities, and yeah, even how we think about politics. Everything. All that from a short sentence, Mark 12, 17. The Pharisees, Herodians, thought they had a perfect trap for Jesus. Instead, they got a sentence, just one single sentence, that has served as the basis for political philosophies for thousands of years across hundreds of societies. Amazing. No wonder people marveled at Jesus. But the challenges didn't stop. Challenges didn't stop coming. Yeah, it got too hot in the kitchen again, but another person took their shot at it and went in. So challenge number two relates to the resurrection. Challenge number two relates to the resurrection. One of the tough parts of playing baseball uh, in the northern part of the United States is having to practice indoors in the winter. I cannot stand it. Growing up every year playing the game, every winter was spent inside either at practice facilities or basketball gyms. And every winter we would try to do whatever baseball stuff we could do indoors. And now on the more dangerous side of that was taking ground balls indoors. So our coaches would hit ground balls on an actual hardwood surface as hard as they could. And I remember one time, I think I was 13, I was in line to take a ground ball. I was the next person in line taking these screaming ground balls. And the person in front of me, he was up, got the ground ball hit to him, and it popped up past him and hit me square in the face, right between my eyes, knocked out. First, uh, I think that was my second concussion. Well, what's happening here? As Jesus is in the temple on this Tuesday of Holy Week, reminds me of an infielder who keeps getting hit ground ball after hard ground ball, and nothing gets past him. So starting in verse 18 is another hard ground ball, another challenge from a different group. This time this group's called the Sadducees. This group's closely associated with the priests of Israel, and the priests at this time exerted more and more influence in politics and in the temple. Now the Sadducees were among the highest social rank in the entire Jewish society. And Mark points out to us what he wants us to know about the Sadducees. Just really simply, he points out to us that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. This was because it was part of their greater belief, or lack of belief, really, in any supernatural elements of the Bible. 
But then we keep going. We see in verse 19 that the Sadducees appealed to something in particular. The Sadducees appealed to Moses. That's the accepted author of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The Sadducees appealed to Moses because the Torah was the only part of the Bible that they accepted as the word of God. That's it. Not the prophets, not the writings. And so the group of Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, not really into the supernatural stuff of the Bible, who only believe in the Pentateuch or the Torah, this group of Sadducees, like the Herodians and the Pharisees before them, worked really hard to craft a perfect scenario for Jesus that would trap him. And this scenario, just to explain it a little bit, this scenario is based on a practice called Leverite marriage. So they explain it some. This was an ancient practice that if a man died and his wife was childless, then his closest male relative would marry his widow so she could bear children. So it was a way for a dead man's name and legacy to continue. If you want to see an example of this, read the book of Ruth. Perfect example. So the Sadducees cooked up this elaborate and far-fetched hypothetical situation where seven different brothers in turn fulfilled the duty of marrying the widow. This is the duty of what's known as the kinsman redeemer. And all of these died childless. And the Sadducees thought that there was no way that there could be a resurrection or any life beyond this life because of possible scenarios like this that would make life after death look ridiculous. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, first, we see Jesus calls them out. He says they don't know the Bible, and they don't know the power of God. Now, mind you, this would be like telling Iron Chef Michael Simon that he doesn't know anything about food. But it's true. It's true. Many people who critique Christianity and who hold false beliefs, many of those people have never actually read the Bible. And their lack of faith, the Sadducees' lack of faith in the resurrection, not only did they not believe their Bibles, their lack of faith in the resurrection also showed that they denied the power of God. Friends, how many, how many mainline Protestant denominations have been infected with the diseases of denying the authority of the Bible and denying the power of God. Denying the supernatural elements of Scripture, like miracles, like the deity of Christ, like the physical resurrection of Christ. How many groups have been infected with these diseases? And y'all, don't think that we are immune to these diseases. If you don't read the Bible, you are in danger of catching these diseases. If we stop preaching the Bible, we are in danger of catching these diseases. Do you know why? It's because the good influence that we have of God's word will go away. But you know what the bad influences of our culture that's increasingly just naturalistic or at best vaguely spiritual, that bad influence will still be there. And so we run the risk of becoming those who deny scripture and deny the authority and power of God. So careful. Well, Jesus continues his response by making clear that the life to come is different from life now. He makes that clear. 
The life to come is different from life now. So within the Sadducees' denial of the resurrection was an assumption that the life to come is simply a continuation of life here. So now notice in verse 26, we're going to retain our personalities in the life to come. You see there, Abraham's still Abraham. Isaac's still Isaac. Jacob's still Jacob. We will retain our personalities, but Jesus indicates our relationships will be majorly transformed. He says we will no longer marry or be given in marriage in heaven. Why? Why? Well, in the resurrected, renewed world, we won't need marriage. We won't need marriage. J.C. Ryle says this, Enjoying the full presence of God and his Christ, men and women shall no longer need the marriage union in order to help one another. Able to serve God without weariness and attend on him without distraction, doing his will perfectly and seeing his face continually. Clothed in a glorious body, they shall be as the angels which are in heaven. The love and communion we will have with all of our brothers and sisters in eternity, friends, I dare say, And I think Jesus would agree based on what he says here. The love and communion between all of our brothers and sisters in eternity will infinitely outweigh the good but temporary gift of marriage now. Jesus closes his response, his response against the Sadducees saying that they don't believe in the resurrection. He closes his response by arguing on their own terms. Okay, you guys only believe in the Pentateuch? I could go a lot of places outside the Pentateuch that talks about life beyond this life, that talks about the resurrection, but you know what? I'll stick to your game. I will appeal to the Pentateuch. So Jesus goes to Exodus chapter 3, which is the second book of the Bible. This is a passage that the Sadducees would have accepted. He goes to Exodus chapter 3 when God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now notice here, God didn't tell Moses that he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He tells Moses that he still is their God. Not was, but still is. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all gone and dead physically, they were still alive to God because God remained committed to them. Their hope in God was not for this life only, It was for all eternity. In the words of the Apostle Paul that we read earlier, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So another challenge, another brilliant answer. In an attempt to trap Jesus and make him look ridiculous, the Sadducees challenged him on the subject of eternity. We hear the same today, don't we? People who scoff at the idea of heaven. Asking, what are we going to do? Sit around and play harps all day? (laughs) But like the Sadducees, when people say stuff like that, they show that their imagination doesn't do justice to the majesty and power and beauty of God. The prospects of eternal life with God that Jesus describes here to the Sadducees are so amazing that the Sadducees are stunned into silence. Do you hear a response or read of a response from them? No, you don't. 
So these challenges, friends, whether it's about taxes, whether it's about the resurrection, they don't appear in a vacuum. They come at this point in the story of the Gospel of Mark for a reason. So if this is the end of the boxing match, the result is clear. Jesus has emerged the winner of both of these challenges. But what does this victory over these challenges show us? Two things very quickly. First, the vic- Jesus' victory over these challenges, the result shows us that Jesus can withstand attacks. Jesus can withstand attacks. To anyone here who remains skeptical about Jesus, know that he can handle your questions and attacks. You have a room full of people who have given their lives to Jesus, who have asked him questions and have still given their lives to Jesus. And we've seen enough, not that we know everything, but we've seen enough of Jesus. Most of the people in this room have seen enough of Jesus not just because we've gotten all of our questions answered, but because Jesus has answered questions that no one else can answer. And you know what the main one is? Is how can sinful people be made right before a holy God? No one can answer that besides Jesus. Jesus can withstand attacks. Followers of Christ know that this morning. The challenges here in Mark 12 tell us that we should expect challenges to our faith today, whether it's in the classroom, the boardroom, or the family room. But this passage also tells us that we don't have to be scared of those challenges either, that Jesus can withstand challenges. He's done so for thousands of years. Look at Jesus and see that there is no one like him. Like the people in this passage, we can't help but look and marvel. Jesus can withstand attacks. Well, if that's true, if that's what this result shows us, it has to show us something else too. So if we think about the rest of the story, if Jesus can withstand attacks, then how do we make sense of the cross? And what does the cross mean? I mean, if Jesus can handle any trap and any snare, this must mean that Jesus dying on the cross happened not because he was outdueled or outmatched or outwitted. Jesus dying on the cross must mean that he went there because he went there willingly. Not because he was defeated. That's what he says in John chapter 10. He says that he lays down his life. No one takes it from him. Why does he lay down his life? For the sake of all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him alone to pay the penalty for our sin. And he says something else in John 10 that's interesting. Not only that he willfully lays down his life, no one takes it from him, but also that Jesus has the power to take up his life again. All of us here, at least those who have, given our lives to Christ and follow him in every area of our lives, whether it be how to relate to government or how to believe about the life to come, we have done that because Jesus is the one who said he would die and come back. And then he actually did it. We trust and follow the one who can withstand and overcome anything. Not just verbal attacks. Can stand and overcome sin, Satan, and even the grave. This is our Savior. Let's pray.
Lord, our rock and our redeemer, you are our greatest treasure. In you we trust and you we stand. On you and none other. Lord, help us to follow you in all areas of life. There are many other voices that seek to draw us away. Keep us close to you. God, increase our, uh, our confidence in you. Lord Jesus, that you can withstand any attacks. And you overcame all challenges, even sin, even death. Thank you, Lord, that we are united to you by faith and have the sure hope of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name we pray.